Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 79, week 79, volume 79, number fucking 79. Hang on guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. So this week's guest is Scott from Carnifex and that will be coming up later in the show. We normally kick things off with a bit of feedback, bit of what's been going on and possibly questions. This week's been pretty quiet on that. We did hear from Scotty2Hotty666 and he said, thank you for providing me with a podcast that allows me to hear in-depth conversations with guests. Thank you for not restricting the show to a certain genre and thank you for having such in-depth hard-hitting content. Fuck yeah, thank you, Scotty. Really appreciate the feedback there, dude. Really stoked that you enjoy what we do. Yeah, I don't like pigeonholing this show by a certain genre, and I definitely like the fact that our conversations with guests are of a lengthy period. We don't want to be a radio show that's pretending to be a podcast, so we're not going to do 15, 20-minute conversations. That's not our jazz. We're going to keep doing lengthy conversations and stoked that you enjoy them. You know, it's important that you're not only discovering maybe artists you don't know, but maybe also you're discovering something about an artist you already know and love. So stoked you're enjoying it all, Scotty. Stick with us. We've got some big guests coming up and the content is going to keep on rolling. Housekeeping wise for this week, the only thing I've got to ask guys is we need some ratings and reviews through Facebook, through iTunes, wherever you can give us a rating and a review. It's really important, helps the show get out to more listeners. We don't get paid for ratings and reviews. All it does is it gets into that system, that algorithm that puts them all together and gets us out to more listeners. So if you've got a moment this week, if you've got a moment any time of your day get on there give us a rating and a review we'd love to see whether you think the show's good whether you think the show's shit all of it is invaluable feedback for us the only other thing i gotta say guys is keep the listens up welcome all of our new listeners we see you we appreciate you and of course all our diehard regular listeners as always we see you we love you thank you for always tuning in So let's get on to the part of the show everyone is without a doubt tuned into for, and that is our interview with Scott from Carnifex. First thing I've got to say is thank you so very, very much, Scott, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Scott and the Carnifex guys are one of those names that when you speak of the deathcore genre, you will know this band. And to finally get him on the show after a lot of persistence means a lot. It was a great chat, in-depth. He gave us some time, gave us some insight, and he was nice, open, and honest. So thank you, Scott, again. Really appreciate it. That chat with Scott is coming up now. So I always kind of start off with kind of a bit of a general question, but do you remember an artist that doesn't have to be heavy namesakes, but an artist that brought you into music and suddenly you were like, oh, music's something that exists. Uh, yeah, Paul McCartney, the Beatles, probably. Oy. You know, to go go back to the beginning, I would say it would be the Beatles. You know, my 
mom was very musical uh, early on, so she, she would always have music on in the house. And the Beatles were her favorite, so they were my favorite band, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, I think I was kind of pretty lucky in that. Um, that was some of the first music I was introduced to because they're, you know, fantastic songwriters. And I think they really kind of have the credit for really establishing kind of how a modern radio song was written. Um, so I think hearing them for so many years from such an early age and then hearing other, you know, really influential rock acts, young like The Doors and Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix, I think it just had a real effect on me how powerful and how much you could really connect with just a sound. So music was in the household. So was all music always playing or was there instruments in the house? What was the house like with music for you? Yeah, music was on often, definitely. Certainly always in the car, which, you know, we live in Southern California. I grew up in Los Angeles and in San Diego, so you're always driving. Everywhere you go, you're driving. So it was always on in the car, pretty much. I don't really remember listening to anything else, frankly. It was just, you know, kind of, it was the classic, you know, Roy Orbison or, or the Beatles or, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel. That's kind of all it was. Never really had any political or talk show or stuff like that on, but probably for the best. <laughs> you know, I don't know how that, what influence that would have had on me at a young age. Um <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, as far as like instruments in the house, um, uh, you know, my mom played piano so that we had a piano, but it was more, more listening to it than it was, um, you know, kind of playing it or, or participating in it early on. So when did, um, the heavy aspect of things come in? Do you kind of remember a, a band or a moment that kind of led you down the path that you're in now? Yeah. It, well, I mean, it would be grunge. You know, so I was born in 84. So by the time that I was, you know, looking for my own music or music that wasn't just being put on by my mom, it was when, you know, MTV and grunge was in full effect. So I have an older sister. Uh, she was you know, completely immersed in it. So the first first acts that I was drawn to that weren't, you know, uh, kind of older of an older generation was you know, Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden and Red Hot Chili Peppers, Manson, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. It was really those were some of the first kind of that alt rock MTV sound was some of the first uh, music that I was exposed to that I guess you would call heavy, certainly heavy for being 10 and 11. Yeah, you. I'm, I'm 83, so I remember those days. MTV was still a mainstay of culture at that time. Uh, videos were still a thing. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, especially in Southern California, you know, it was really kind of, you know, <laughs> what was on was what was happening pretty much. So around this time, did you start getting into horror movies too? Because, you know, without forwarding too far, I know graphic novels and horror movies is something that you heavily connect with nowadays, was that part of your forte that brought you into more of the gore side, extreme side of things? Yeah, I think so. I think, or just, you know, kind of, you know, adult-themed movies in general, you know, just, I remember, I can definitely remember being young, kind of peeking around the corner in a house and watching Taxi Driver, you know, so <laughs> things, I think things like that just sort of, 
kind of consuming some of the some movies or, or just you know whether it's movies or music what have you that just kind of fast forwarded uh what was being thrown at you i guess in terms of content and themes you know like watching a movie like taxi driver when you're 10 i think <laughs> probably leaves a pretty big mark on you know or like the exorcist you know i saw the exorcist when I was really young and it was, it was horrifying, completely horrifying. Um, so I think, yeah, the, those things were happening at the same time. You know, the same time I'm hearing Nirvana is the same time I'm watching the exorcist. So it's like all hitting at once, you know, what was the, um, what was the reaction from family when you start, you know, really getting into extreme music? Because I remember my folks being quite scared at the fact that I was in my room listening to music that they called inaudible, um, so what was, what was your family's reaction when suddenly Scott starts getting really deep into extreme? Um, I mean, I think it was kind of inevitable. I think, you know, to, the artists that I was first attracted to were probably sort of on the outside to begin with, you know, Manson was definitely very controversial in 94, you know, and then you had mm. Columbine happened, um, which was, they tried to blame Manson for it, which at the, you know, now it seems really silly, but at the time it was, you know, a real conversation, uh, especially here in the States. Um, and so I think that just right there off the bat, I'm already sort of on the fringe and then finding Immortal and Demi Bulgear and Cradle of Filth and those bands was really just the next step. It's like, well, what's beyond Manson and Trent Reznor and Rob Zombie? Who, who's crazier than that? And well, you know, Danny Filth is and Shagrath <laughs> is and Abbott is, you know? So I was just, I sort of just arrived there through, you know, kind of just searching how, how deep does the tunnel go? Was part of the, you know, when growing up, part of the attraction for some kids is the rebellious side of things and also another part is feeling like you belong because jumping from Manson, I remember Manson at the same age was very, you know, he tapped into what it was like to be an outsider, what it was like to be different. But then jumping into Cradle, that's a whole different level of chaos going on there. What what about that? Was it the imagery? You know, was it just the fact that it was just insanely extreme? What brought you into all of that very blackened metal? I think it was probably a lot of a lot of those things. You know, column A and column B. I think I was I was probably attracted to how uh, kind of outwardly perverse everything was. You know. Um, I think it was also very anti-religious, mm-hmm. you know, so at the time, kind of religiosity and just being conservative in general was very much a part of the fabric uh, of just culture in the U.S. at the time. So, you know, that was why there was protests outside of the Manson concert was everybody, a lot of people were really pushing back against this subculture. And to me, that was exactly where I wanted to be because I didn't identify with any of of the peop these people and then I'm going looking over here going, well, I mean I guess this makes sense. At least I can see authenticity in this. At least I can see raw expression and this, you know, purge and catharsis where the other side is really just a lot of kind of uh pretentious hypocrisy. And I didn't 
you know, I didn't relate to that at all. So I was sort of immediately drawn to, to, to this counterculture. Yeah. And it, it does it. Once it brings you in, you stay in. Um, what about with music as something you wanted to pursue? When was it people like Manson and Reznor that made you want to be someone on stage performing or was there something else that drew you to performance? Well, you know, I came kind of out of theater prior to performing music Ooh. lives. So through middle school, junior high, I was doing you know, theater and in drama class and kind of doing all the, the plays that you would, you would think that you would do through the school, school grades. And I really enjoyed that. I, I think that established my taste and, um, I guess, kind of, it, I I work real well in that cl- collaborative environment. I think that transferred over to the band environment pretty well, where it's like, look, I, I know I'm good at this thing, but I know you're better at that thing. And so going from theater, where I was actually never had the confidence to <laughs> take a singing role, um, you know, I was really insecure as a child. Um, and when I first started playing in bands, I actually was the drummer, <laughs> not Ooh. the vocalist. So <laughs> yeah, I was still trying to hide then. And then I think through my love for um, movies um, and just my love, I've really been drawn to these enigmatic, you know, front people who were also lyricists. You know, uh, Corgan was a lyricist. Reznor was a lyricist. Manson was a lyricist. So I think... I sort of kind of worked my way backwards into kind of the front man position or being a lyricist that is at the front of the band. It wasn't by design or choice ever. It was more like, well, I really love writing. And then if I look back at where I'm from, it was like, I never had that confidence in myself to you know, be out in front and be speaking. But when I was writing with the band, you know, even before Carnifex, my early bands, it was the first time I really felt like I fit in and belonged, you know, kind of a group of outsiders together. So it felt natural by the time I got to the band to to then be a singer, but not before. <laughs> it's quite a quite a transition as well, going from being at the back of the stage to the front of the stage. And, you know, at the front of the stage, you can't hide behind everyone looking at you. It's a natural draw, uh, whether people admit it or not. So did that take quite a bit of time to adjust to that you couldn't hide when on stage anymore? Um, I mean, in a way, but also I felt really at home with metal. So I think, you know, within the context of being a metal show, other metal bands are playing, it felt very, you know, I felt like I fit in there. So um, it made more sense to me. But also... You know, very early on, we didn't play for anybody, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it it's kind of like, yeah, it was it, it was a fear of getting in front of people, but in all honesty, you know, we're playing for like ten people for like the first year, so <laughs> it wasn't the biggest fear to overcome right away. You know, <laughs> it was an easy adjustment period for you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It wasn't like you know we stepped on stage at, at a European festival, <laughs> um, you know, kind of how we do now. It, it really was much different early on. With um, learning vocals at the start, because your voice has grown and you can see the progression from the self-titled EP to the songs that are already released off World War X, how did you initially develop your sound or find your sound? Because we're talking about a time when 
Melissa Cross's Zen of Screaming wasn't really a thing. We're talking about a time when YouTube wasn't, I don't think even think YouTube was around yet. How did you Mm-mm. learn and find how to scream? Because it's a whole different thing for kids now. But when you started, there was a different game as well. Yeah, and I think it started just from listening to artists that I admired, you know, and I, I get asked the question a lot, um, you know, what's, what's your secret for vocals? And I, I kind of wonder if I'm doing it wrong. Cause I see all of the, these other guys selling their vocal secrets and come to my coaching class and stuff. And I'm like, I don't have a secret, you know, I just kind <laughs> of just practice and tried to, I just tried to sound like, you know, all the guys we talked about early on, like Cradle and Demi Bulgear and Immortal and Emperor and Fetus and Cannibal. I was just, those are all my favorite artists. And I was just trying to be my version of them. And that was kind of as much thought as I put into it, you know. And, <laughs> you know, everyone in the band is self-taught musicians. You know, Sean didn't even start playing drums till he was 19. Sure. Uh, and none of, none of us have a, you know, school of, of music degree or, or really took any formal training at all. Uh, so I think uh, a lot of the progression that you see from album one to album seven and, and then in the lyrics, uh, in the drumming and the guitar playing, just everything individually. And as a band, we're all just getting better because it's just more time in, in the seat, you know, just more time. And, uh, more time writing songs, you just become better at it. So I think so much of it is about us just, I don't know, really focusing on the craft and process of trying to get a song to where it really is something you enjoy and not just, I don't know, maybe a product that you might produce by album seven, you know, let's just get the thing out there, you know? Yeah. I think you can see that also in, you know, the landscape of, what bands were doing and what kind of bands were around. Cause when you guys kicked off in, you know, the early two thousands, um, metal core was the thing. Um, all these metal core bands were coming out and doing their thing. And then, you know, whether it's an ugly word or it's a, you know, it's how it is. Death core started and you guys were one of those bands that were really at the forefront, starting it with all these other ones like Whitechapel and stuff was, were the early years for the band about intentionally trying to distance themselves from metalcore or was it just you're doing what you want to do? Because that sound at the start, people might give it crap, but it was really something different. Not a lot of bands are doing it and then you guys started doing it and then bands started copying off that. Yeah, it was weird um, because, you know, you're totally right when you say what the the musical landscape was. In 2005, it was all about metalcore. So when, and it was kind of how we arrived at our name. I mean, so much of kind of talking about being counterculture, so much of the origin of Carnifex is kind of has our contrarian nature in it to begin with, which down to our name was, we didn't want a name that had that was long because at the time all the metalcore bands had all these long, <laughs> all these long names, you know. <laughs> and so for us, we we're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to go the other way. We just want one word. It's a one-word name, and, you know. So we picked Carnifex, and and 
you know, early on we were really like, how, you know, how fast can we blast? Nobody's blasting. Let's blast. Everybody's doing clean singing. Let's do the craziest guttural that you can think of, which <laughs> then became a thing after the fact. But when we re- were writing those songs in 2005 and 2006, there was no one else to look to. It was us just saying, what can we do that basically is a middle finger to all the bands that, you know, none of us really think are that good, frankly. You know, we were <laughs> not metalcore kids, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> did did you? But, and we got a lot of flack, honestly. The first couple shows, like, people didn't really like it. <laughs> really? Oh, not at all. No, we did not do well for like the first, you know, six months. It really, it wasn't even, we didn't even start doing well locally. We started doing well online through MySpace. And then sort of the local scene sort of caught up because we would play with metalcore bands and kind of get a flat reaction. (laughs) Well, it was. I mean, the the, you guys and Whitechapel and I think like Suicide Silence were the MySpace kind of deathcore bands that people would rave about but it's interesting that people are giving you flack then because people still give you flack during your career it's it's this weird thing people say oh i don't like deathcore but then you go but they've sold a lot of albums they've toured the world and they played a big crowd so somebody likes it i mean it it's like a I remember no one said they wanted to like new metal, but everyone liked new metal. They just didn't want to tell it to anyone. Yeah, I think it's it, it, you kind of see it come in waves, and and new metal is a good thing to look to because when the new metal wave came, it was a tsunami. There was a million and one bands. Uh, I think if you go pick up a you know two thousand one issue of Revolver, it would just be a graveyard of bands that don't exist anymore. Um, (laughs) and there'd probably all be new metal bands every single one of them probably be a new metal band but then look where we are now you know 10 or 15 years later you still have a few survivors the cream rose to the top so to speak and the bands that really charted their own course within the genre survived okay so let's go the next cycle well it was metalcore right american metalcore kill switch and azalea dying and uh, lamb of god all that stuff and again, you saw this wave of bands, but who's left? There's a few bands left. And I think the same thing happened with Deathcore. Deathcore got big and everyone jumped on the pile. And then now we're 10, 15 years later and we go, well, who's left? And again, it's Carnifex, it's Whitechapel, it's the bands that sort of survived, so to speak. Well, I think also something that, you know, if you listen to, so uh, so much of Slow Death and also the singles that are released off World War X, I think the reasons that Carnifex, you guys are still going, and Chapel have shown it with their recent releases, you guys are willing to uh, not just stick to what it is. You're not writing the same album every album. They're, you're dropping elements, bringing in new elements. You're evolving the sound. Um, part of that comes a risk. Uh, are you ever worried that, you know, it's that thing of don't change, people will criticize you. Change too much, people will criticize you. You've got to ride that wave very carefully. Yeah, I, I suppose you do. If if you're going to hold yourself to those metrics at all. So but I don't think we do at all. You know, I don't think it's a matter of kind of are we changing too much or not enough. I think, you know, and two, to go back one step further, we never – 
made a choice to be a deathcore band. Like mm. it, it, the genre wasn't there. We we just wrote what we wrote, and then all of the sudden around us, we find ourselves in the center of this very big genre. So I don't know that we, you know, were ever obligated to stay here to begin with. Um, you know, it was something that sort of sprung up around us, so we can move on at any time. And I think we have, in a way, um, not that we don't like what we did or somehow want to distance ourselves, but at the same time, it w- was that was just our first expression, you know, and the, mm. the fact that that expression happened to also be what everyone decided to call deathcore after the fact. That's great for the genre, but that is kind of outside of our intention as writers. And it was the same for this record. We never really had the thought, is this a deathcore riff or a black metal riff or a death metal riff? It was more just, you know, what's the best expression we can make at the time? You know, just like when we did Dead in My Arms. And it's a different expression because we're different musicians or we're more evolved musicians, but it's still the same guys with the same influences. So that's kind of the counterbalance of, of do we change enough and not too much, but doing it in a very artistic and musical way. Yeah. And I think you can see also that, you know, you're seven albums in with world war X that, you know, whether you like the tag or not, you're veterans of the game, no matter what genre you want to call it, you're veterans of the game because a lot of those bands from, 2005-2006, if they're not around, even if they are, a lot of them haven't achieved seven albums. Um, you you guys seem to have pursued and maintained no matter what, but something that some fans may remember or may remember not was around 2011-12, you guys, it sounded like you were breaking up. You went on a hiatus. There was all of it, you know, we're stepping away for a while. Um was that a case of, you know, there was some lineup changes at the time, but was it a case of maybe you thought maybe we needed to reevaluate if this was something you wanted to do, or was it kind of your hand was forced that you needed to take time off? Uh, you know, that was a tumultuous time, and that was a lot of things hitting at once. Um, you know, the member change was an aspect of it. Um, you know, Ryan was just moving, moving on from the band, and that was, you know, we didn't, yeah, we had some member changes from our very, very first lineup, you know, back in August of '05. But since you know 2006, we really had the same people. Um, so to have a member change um, was something that was uh, one of those things where, for me, where I was at at the time was, well, I I only want to go and do this if I can be, you know, with the people I care about and be with my bandmates. So if we're not a whole band, like what's the point, right? Mm. It's kind of a non-starter. Um, that was one aspect of it. Um, another aspect of it was just the deal, the record deal that we were in at the time was really just um, kind of counter to having a, 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 a business, you mm. know, a business where you can just pay the bill of, Hey, we got to pay for this merch. We got to buy this. We got to pay for this gas. We got to buy this plane ticket. It was, it was just challenging to just be able to get to the next show and be able to make another record um, in a way that you need to as a professional musician. So, I think when all those things were coming together, Sean and I really said, "Okay, well, 
until I feel nothing was the beginning of the end in that that's my least favorite album from us. And I think it's the album that is the weakest because the band was really just, you know, we were out at sea at that time. Um, so I think coming off of that record, how it performed, how I felt about it as an artist. Um, and then with the member change and stuff that was going on in my personal life, it was just like, look, if we do Carnifex now, it's not going to be good. Like, we're not going to do it justice. And this shitty album that we just wrote, we're going to write a worse one. So let's just stop. And so we did. We we said, that's it. We're going to just put everything on ice. And if things get cleared up, they get cleared up. And if they don't, okay, oh, well. Um, and, I, yeah, I went and got a job. <laughs> you know, it's like I thought that was that. Um, but kind of all the while, you know, Sean and I were still writing music not with any, I don't really know why kind of thinking back on it, we were, had a pretty negative outlook on, and I, I kind of didn't think we were going to do another record. And I didn't even know if I wanted to do another record, honestly, I think we both had a bad taste in our mouth. So, um, I don't know. We just really worked on it kind of, I guess like it was just a hobby kind of in passing. And then we were, we, you know, we were able to partner with a new label, which was, uh, really, really pivotal to the band getting back up on their feet. And I think we were at this point where we'd gone through the ringer as a band. So we said, look, if we're going to be getting into the business again of making music, we really want to protect ourselves. And so we made sure that NB was the right partner for us. And, um, and they are, and they really let us express our vision. You know, they took us off the leash. They said, you do whatever you want. And then, you started getting records like Die Without Hope, like Slow Death, and and now here we are at World War X. And I think a big part of that is that great partnership we had with NB to sign a band and then say, well, we signed you because we believe in you. Like, do what you want. You know, we're not going to stop you, which, frankly, we got said, we were told no a lot on the early records. Um, so to be able to go for it and have a partner that believes in you is empowering. And he gets better music. Yeah, and it's it's not only that, but you know, no disrespect to Victory, but on the landscape of labels and recognition, Nuclear is just it's up there with the elite. It's one of those labels that you mention to anyone who's into any kind of metal, they'll know that label. Um, and also to be given freedom, it must have just given you guys a real kick in the ass because. When you came back with Die Without Hope in 2014, you could even hear in the sound of the band that you guys were re-energized with new ambition and just ready to take the world on. Yeah, that was probably spite too. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, we came back with a vengeance because we sort of felt like we had something to say and that we'd been stifled, but now we could say it, so we were going to scream it. <laughs> <laughs> and an interesting thing, I was, you know, cranking World War X the other day. Now, this kind of ties into how things were with other albums and then this one coming up. This album feels very, I might be wrong in thinking it, but it sound, feels like a concept album. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way. Um, there were overarching themes on albums like slow death and um hell chose me but this feels like it's got a very distinct vision is that 
intentional or is that just how all the cards have fallen? Totally intentional. I, that's, you know, embracing theme was, was a, a mantra that we reminded ourselves of pretty often. And we did it in the music, in the lyrics, um, you know, with the cover art, with the music videos. And, and so it's, I wouldn't call it concept in that it, it definitely, I don't think it has a narrative beginning, middle, end, or you know, song one, chapter one, song two, chapter two. It's it's not necessarily a concept in that, but it has a cohesive theme from start to finish in that all the songs are told through the same framing device and through the same perspective. And musically, we tried to really make sure that we had a cohesive atmosphere from song one to song nine, meaning that, you know, no matter what part of the album you listen to, you're going to know you're listening to World War X and not Slow Death or Die Without Hope. You also, I've noticed, you know, your songs are a bit longer on this album. Um, Carnifex, you've always been known for, you know, four minutes, bang in, bang out. Um, These songs feel longer, but they don't feel shit for being longer. And what I mean by that is they don't feel like they're intentionally made to be longer. They don't overstay their welcome. Is that something that you guys focused on with this album was to have a bit more of length in your tracks? Uh, It was, it was something that we knew we wanted to do early on. And that's, you know, kind of going back to the start of this writing process. We, that's why we gave ourselves three years, you know, more so than any other album, because we knew we wanted to be more ambitious, but we also knew, you know, it's harder to write a good five-minute song than it is a three-minute song. Um, you have to maintain that interest for almost twice as long. Um, so it almost has to be twice as good. Good luck. <laughs> and it's it's challenging. Uh, but we rose to that occasion. But I think, you know, in part, how we got there was by giving ourselves, you know, the extra time. So we we knew we wanted it to to push the envelope for time. And we even questioned it. You know, there were points when we said, you know, like, do people want longer songs? <laughs> you know, it's been working <laughs> three minutes and 30 seconds has been working. Why are we changing it? Um, but I'm glad that we did because we, you know, cause that was, it wasn't about looking at what we did. Like it was about doing something new. So we, we had to write longer songs or, or at least we had to do some new things and longer songs was a part of that. It also feels like lyrically it's a bit different for for you because um, previously it's been a lot about, you know, hatred, anger, um, betrayal, depression, hopelessness. Um, and this one feels like it's still about that, but this one feels like it's a bit of a middle finger as in like, doesn't matter what this is going on, you're going to rise above it. Am I getting the right kind of concept you lyrically? Are. Yeah, then that's that's really exciting to to hear you say that, um, because that's what I'm trying to convey. And really, it's about the subversion of the idea that because you know maybe in your personal life or internally you're facing an anxiety or a fear or a paranoia or a dread of some kind, um, rather than internalizing it and being less than because of it, you're putting it out on the battlefield and challenging it on the front line trying to conquer it. And that's, you know, when I heard the guys writing the music for the record, I knew, man, I have to elevate my lyric writing as well. And so using the theme of the album and the battle, the theme of the battlefield and this dystopian planet 
this dystopian existence. Uh, it w- it was a framing device that was really helpful for me to add scope and scale to what I'm trying to do with my lyrics, which is connect personally and very intimate. And the earlier records are they're very intimate connections, but this is a epic record that has scope and scale. So I had to do that in my lyrics too. And um, so yeah, I definitely pushed myself beyond that um, kind of the first person perspective and and try to to take it and really create more of a world with it is that a reflection also of where you are in life is is life just maybe you you are stronger now than you were in 2006 hmm. that's uh i didn't i didn't have that thought but you know that it's probably true uh, and i mean i well it's definitely true you know we, 2006 was, you know, we were still, those were our formative years as musicians. And, you know, Die Without Hope is an, or uh, Dead in My Arms is an album that I, it means a lot to us and, and really was this raw example of where we were at that time. But, you know, there's, I think there's a confidence on this album and, uh, and a, take that's unique to Carnifex that doesn't that is on there that didn't exist on Dead in My Arms. You know, we just weren't there yet as a band. It's also exciting with how you've been doing pre order packaging. Um seems like a lot of thought has gone into that because, you know, we look at the record industry nowadays, a lot of it is not geared to physical stuff. A lot of it is geared to just online stuff. But you guys have always been you know, a champion of physical stuff and you're doing this really interesting packaging that looks like a VHS tape. Um, it's a hark back to the old days, but it's also giving fans a reward for supporting the band like they always love. Yeah. For, for us, it was important to kind of go all in, you know, really, if we're going to be ambitious musically, well, let's be ambitious everywhere. And so we, we wanted to have the, you know, the really wild packages. And I'm glad that you're excited about the box because you know, I love that stuff too. And so much, I think so much of this is just us as, as fans of metal and fans of, you know, all the stuff that goes along with, with being in the metal scene and just saying, well, you know, we want to do our cool version of that and we want to try to add to all the uniqueness that our scene has. So it's, it's fun for us to be able to do different things like that and really be embraced by the fans. And thankfully it has been, uh, so it's just been a fun ride. We just really, I just want everyone to hear the record now, you know, just get it out there. Yeah. I can't, after, after listening to it myself, I can't, I can't wait for this is, um, I think it's a really exciting time for the band because I think we can safely say that you're just a metal band now after listening to this album. Um, I hope people don't tag it in a negative way that it's just a deathcore album because it's not. There is elements in there that are, you know, black metal, death metal, symphonic stylings, just straight up metal. Um, It's a very exciting album um, and I'm assuming it'll be a very exciting you know, touring cycle for you guys. You're obviously going to have a lot of things going on for the next six months to a year. Yeah, we well, we're doing the Summer Slaughter tour uh, to kick off the album. 
but then we're we're kind of switching it up a little bit. We're taking the fall off, and we're really focusing on our spring 2020 headliner uh, here in North America. And we really want to try to make that a theatrical experience and elevate our live show to um, really to the level of the music. You know, I think when you listen to the World War X in particular, it has such a theatrical feel to it. And I want to be able to present that just as big on stage. So we're going to really focus on making 2020 and that headliner um, just the best version of a Carnifex headline tour ever. And then from there on out, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll see who wants to take us on tour. So maybe we'll get a call from Slipknot and we'll get that, that chance to, you know, get out there and break beyond the death curl world. We're, we're hoping so. And I mean, you know, this is a record that we believe in and not that we ever, you know, I don't feel like <laughs> it's weird. We have this interesting relationship with death core because you know, it, it wasn't something that it that wasn't a peg that uh, or, you know, a slot that we were put in af- after the fact. It was something that showed up and then said, oh, you're a deathcore band. Uh, so I think, you know, for us to be able to kind of be ourselves, just like we were originally, but then also get people to really say, hey, you actually more than that after 14 or 15 years. That would be an exciting thing for us. So hopefully this record does it. Do you ever think that tag that, you know, that's stuck with you the whole time has held people back from giving you a go? Uh, probably. Mm, yeah. I mean, and I, I don't resent it. I really don't. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me. I mean, it's, you know, us and that scene go hand in hand. We wouldn't exist without each other. Um, so, no, I, I don't resent it. But I do know that. Yeah, there's a group of a portion of the industry out there that looks at this genre as kind of, you know, not serious, <laughs> you know, unfortunately for better force. It is. Um, but everyone listening, when you hear this album, yeah, you're, yeah, you're going to get behind this. This is this World War X. Amazing. Dude, just, yeah, amazing. Um, just want to touch on a couple of things. Um, outside of the Carnifex world that you're heavily into and one you've done, one you're on the way, um, Death Dreamer. Yeah, I'm doing issue two right now, actually. Um, I think the response to the first one was really amazing. And it was, you know, it was a kind of a roll of the dice and saying, hey, you know, can we do this thing uh, outside of Carnifex, outside of the band? Like, are the fans going to come with me? And they really did. We did 40,000 in four weeks on the, on the crowdfund, which was amazing, blew my mind. And then the response on the road has been so insane. Um, now that the record's done, uh, I had to get on the other side of the record. And <laughs> as now that you've heard it, you know, it, it took all my attention. I had to give it all my attention. But now that I'm on the other side of it, uh, I'm in, I'm right into the issue two right now, and it's going to be coming out in March of 2020. So where'd, where'd the idea for doing it come from? It was it pretty much just a passion project. And then the second part of that question was you went in with some crowdfunding, you know, process. Were you, re- were you ever worried that people wouldn't pull through? Cause they pulled through and they pulled through really well. Um, yeah, so it, it really was a passion project, honestly. Um, you know, and prior to putting the crowdfund up, uh, 
I was into it a lot on my own. Uh, really, what it <laughs> I was kind of just paying myself back at that point because we had the process for adapting, you know, fifty six pages from script to a graphic novel is really time consuming. Um, I have a, an insanely talented illustrator, Christian Debari, and he really was. We worked hand in hand on that adaptation, but it's just a lot of pages to go through. Um, and so I really had to start that process, you know, prior to the, the crowdfund being launched because they give you a, kind of a 45-day option or window. And there's no way you can do a book in 45 days. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, stay, we, we had a real good head start on it. And then by the time that I launched the crowdfunding, I was, you know, probably into the thing like 25 grand on my own. So, Whew. yeah, I was really like, uh, come on, guys. You know, we got like <laughs> 50 pages of colored book here. Like, <laughs> I, hope, I hope they're excited for it because I don't know what I'm going to do with it otherwise. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, amazingly, it really came together, uh, and, which is awesome because I have so many more ideas and Christian and I are really digging into the second one and it's better. You know, just like the records, it's, you know, it was the first one, the first book was my first time doing it um, and first time working with Christian, but that relationship has grown and um, I, the stuff we got in store for the second book, I'm really excited about. So it's going to be like the record, you know, I'm just going to be going, uh, well, hopefully the sooner everybody can hear it and see it, the better. <laughs> Is it something you think you, you could, um, you know, whenever music, you know, music has to end one day, whenever it does in 2040, let's say, um, we're going to make sure you play for another 20 years. Um, <laughs> would, would it be something you could see focusing your career on or would it be something like, cause there's also, the movie stuff going on for you, um, which I know I think you've tentatively titled Blood and Bones. So, you know, which one would you want to stick to if band ended? Well, you know, the goal is to not get to run the band into the ground. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. at, some, at some point, and we're trying to do it already, is really just move away from being the band that's just on tour every Every season, I think that's good for the touring business. Um, you can definitely generate a lot of money quickly that way. But it it also kind of, I think it really just fast forwards the life of the band. Frankly, I think it's like taking your band and just hitting fast forward on it. Hmm. And it's, it's like, man, if you want to get to the end quick, you can. But uh, do you want to? I don't want to. I want to make it last. Um, I don't want to kill myself in the process, and I don't want to, you know, burn the band out on on the fans so for us hopefully it's about getting to the point where we can have that great balance of being able to do something like the comic book um jordan's really moving forward with his studio and producer work um, he's working on a couple of new records coming up uh same with sean always working on the studio stuff so i think for us it's about trying to get the band to the point where it's functioning um alongside these other things and it's not this you know, one or the other, it's, uh, it's, they're all sort of humming along in unison. Yeah. And I think, I think anyone can see it with what the band's doing, what you got with death dream, what you got with blood and bones on the way. It's all, you know, it's all exciting. And it's really good to see that you're someone that creatively doesn't stick to one thing. You have the ability to branch out into many avenues. 
Um, it's really exciting to see. It's also exciting to see that the community gets behind you. Um, it's kind of my last kind of question before we wrap things up is, as someone who's been in the heavy metal community for a long time, you've seen things change um, from being, you know, heavily community out at every show. Um, everyone got behind album sales. Do you think community is still an element of heavy music today, or do you think it's something that we've lost that we're slowly regaining? It's, I mean, it's hard to say. I think if heavy metal really, especially death metal in particular, or, you know, extreme metal, it really lives and dies on the scene. It's interesting that we can go to a town or not go to a town simply based on is there a few good local bands and it's this weird ripple effect where if there's a few good local bands, that means there's a promoter, which means he has a chance to get bigger acts, which means there's a chance for a scene, which means the community can grow. And it's really weird or interesting rather to just kind of see certain cities come and go as these hotspots for metal really based on what, the, the community is you know the physical community where are they going to the shows where are they seeing the bands all that stuff um so i think it's, it's really important extremely important especially for our genre more so than probably any other one yeah it is and i think also carnifex can tip its hat too to being one of those bands that you you seem to really connect with the community and the community seems to connect with you guys that's something that I think you've done the whole time and has it been something you've been very conscious about, always making sure that the fans feel like they're as big a part of the band as the band themselves? Um, you know, we, we do get asked that a lot, but I feel like it's kind of just real natural to us, honestly. It wasn't, I don't know, it's something that we've ever, you know, made a plan of or sort of thought about consciously. Uh, I think... I think it, it, you know, because it just we're just metalheads. At the end of the day, we're fans of metal. So when we're in a room at the merch table, you know, by the trailer, wherever we are, and we can, you know, run cross paths with a fan, it's just they can just have a conversation with us like anyone else at that show. And I think that it, that has been what people have really been responding to is kind of less being, you know, kind of special because we're really not, and really it's just. We're actually really average, and that's what they're connecting with, you know. <laughs> we're all a bunch of misfits. That's what that's what we are. Yeah, we're we're all outsiders together. That's really where I think it, what it is. Um, did you have any goals when you started out, and what are your goals now as an artist? Well, goals starting out, I don't, I don't think so. I think the goal starting out was just do something you know <laughs> play a show write a song uh i don't know hand someone your tape or your, your cd i i think the goal was early on was real basic and real just kind of get to that next thing um now i guess our goals are a little bit different they're probably a little more you know like eh, how do we get the band to the point of being sustainable right you're not mm. asking yourself that question when you're 20 trying to pre-sale tickets you know <laughs> to play on to play at the whiskey <laughs> you're not you're not seeing like well, how do we find the balance between our you know online commerce and tour <laughs> commerce uh 
so I think for now it's 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 about really just as silly as it sounds, yeah, finding that the goal is finding that sustainability, balancing art with our lives with the business, which there are all these things that are probably pulling in different directions, but it's not about stopping them from going in different directions. It's making sure that that pull is sort of equal and opposite. So everything's right where it should be. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, Scott, what we do to finish things off is a segment called pick your poison. Now, what I do here is I give you two options and you pick your favorite of the two. We're going to, Kind of find out what makes you tick. All right. Would you rather a pizza or a burger? Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> not, some are going to be easy. Some are going to be hard. I'll, I'll say I'm going to go with burger on this one just because I think it's – you can get more of a meal. You can probably get more variety out of it. Okay. Would you rather chicken or beef? Mm. Well, I'm vegetarian, so I've got to say pass on both. Oh, okay. Uh, would you rather spinach or lettuce? Uh, spinach, for sure. Okay. Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Oh, wow. Well, they're both great. Um, I Probably Indian, though. Okay. Do you prefer to cook at home or dine out? Um... Probably cook at home because anytime I'm on tour, that's eating out. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather watch a movie at home or at the cinema? Mm, well, if it's a new one, probably at the theater. If it's just kind of to see another thing again, probably at the house. <laughs> uh, beach or snow? Oh, beach every time. <laughs> uh, cat or dog? Mm. Well, you know, years ago I would have said cat, but I got a dog. <laughs> uh, me and my wife have a dog, and we've had him for I think three or four years now. So, I've I've definitely come around to both. <laughs> okay, uh, Terminator or Predator? Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Hmm. Go well, go yeah, the Predator. Oh, I gotta go Predator. Is that even based off I the most to. recent one? Oh, no, the originals. Okay. That's the only thing I'm going off of. Yeah, the originals. Probably not Not to say one's better than the other, but just, man, I had this connection with Predator. I don't know why, but I probably watched it a thousand times. <laughs> um, Rambo or Rocky? Um, Rambo, probably, yeah. Freddy or Jason? Mmm. Damn. Well, to me, Freddy was scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought his backstory was like, you know, more believable and therefore a little more like, maybe that guy does exist, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I got to go Freddy. Uh, Texas Chainsaw or Halloween? Hmm. Probably Texas Chainsaw. Uh, Saw or Hostel? Oh, Saw, for sure. I, I didn't get so hyped on the hostels, but I saw that first Saw in the theater, and that was that was wild. Yeah, it was. I still remember seeing it in the cinemas as well. Um, Slayer or Pantera? Uh, Slayer, for sure. Uh, Cannibal Corpse or Black Dahlia? Oh, man, making me pick between <laughs> friends. 
Uh, I can't answer that. <laughs> we'll go. We'll go draw. We'll go draw on that one. Yeah, draw. Fair enough. Both us doing direct support for them uh, doing a co-headline tour. Uh, the next one might be a little bit hard, or it might be easy. Manson or Zombie? Manson. Yeah, just I connected with that catalog more over the years. And the last few is, do you prefer mic grabs or stage dives? Now, I know that's an interesting one because a lot of the venues you play at probably wouldn't allow stage dives. But what do you prefer to see when you're watching a band play, mic grabs or stage dives? If they ask, if they actually know the words, I'll say <laughs> mic. But you'd be, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. There's a lot of fakers in the front row. Yes. They, they make you think they know the words and then you look for a minute and you realize that's not it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you prefer to watch a show from the mosh pit or up the back? Uh, In the back. That's where I'm at these days. Sorry. (laughs) I'm the same man. I I can't get anywhere near that mosh pit. I can't get anywhere near it. Too old for it. Um, Second last one. Do you prefer to tour or record? I mean, they're so different, honestly. Um, they're just completely different. I, I I I can't make a choice because they're they're both needed, but they're both so different. You know, one wouldn't exist without the other. Yeah, they both got their positives and negatives. Um, now, last one: Would you prefer to own an album on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Hmm. To own it, yeah. Uh, well, to own it would be vinyl, probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, Scott, you're an absolute legend, dude. I'm really, really appreciative of you giving up some of your extra time for me. It was a really good chat, um, really insightful, um, and really enjoyable. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on.
So that was my chat with Scott from Carnifex. And at the end there, you heard the band's title track from their most recent album, their brand new album that's just come out, and that is World War X. You also heard another track from that album called Hail Hellfire. And at the end there, you heard the track Drown Me in Blood from the band's album Slow Death. As I do every week, this is my time to remind you to support these artists, support these bands. And whether you know the band or don't know the band, now's your opportunity to get online, delve into the discography, get on eBay, maybe grab a CD if you want. Or if you've got a local record store, get down there and grab a physical copy. Or if you even want, Get online and buy some merch, buy a t-shirt, buy a hoodie, whatever it is. Support Scott, support Carnifex, and support these bands that we have on this show. It is vital that we support thriving, hard-working artists. Also, need to not forget to thank Scott again. Thank you so much, dude. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Hopefully, we'll see you and the Carnifex guys down here in Australia very, very soon. And that's it. That's The Mosh Zone, episode 79, done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that We need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.